Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, this is Charles Maxwood, and uh, this week on our panel we have uh, James Edward Gray from Gray Productions. Um, he, he's been a longtime member of the community, and uh, we're happy to have him here just about every week. Hey, uh, me too. And uh, I, I almost forgot to mention that it's his birthday. He's an old man. It Yay. is my birthday today. That's right. We recorded like, that episode. 75 years old though, James? Yeah, that's pretty close. Yes, just 75. <laughs> that's all, just 75. Well, that, that was Gregory Brown chiming in. Uh, Greg is the master over at uh, Ruby Mendicant University. He is also the um, author and maintainer of the Prawn PDF library and uh, does a whole bunch of other stuff for the community, including jumping in the middle of the Ruby Gems debate. So, uh, welcome, welcome, uh, Greg. I have, to, I have to apologize, though. I'm, I'm running a little slow. I got back from vacation yesterday, and my brain isn't working at full speed. Um, also, we have uh, Mike Moore. Uh, Mike is a Rubyist here that uh, I actually uh, had lunch with him today, and he's he's the organizer of the uh, Mountain West Ruby Conference, the uh, Ruby Web Conference, and uh, is the host at the Rubyverse podcast. Welcome, Mike. Hello. And last but not least, we also have uh, Peter Cooper, who uh, runs uh, Ruby Inside, and uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank. What else do you do? <laughs> Ruby Weekly. <laughs> Ruby Weekly, JavaScript Weekly, uh, lots of kind of cool stuff. So, hi, he's boys your, and girls. He's your weekly news guy. That's right. And uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com, and uh, I, we'll, we'll go ahead and jump in and get started. So, can I ask a question off of the intros? Uh, go ahead. I, I've never listened to Rubyverse. Mike, what's it about? Uh, Rubyverse is an excuse for me to talk to people, and uh, they talk about different subjects, and then I edit it so they sound extra smart, and that's about it. So it's kind of a no-frill, information-only podcast. So inter- interviews mainly? Is that what you do? Interviews, yeah, mainly. Only, gotcha. actually. Only. Gotcha. Yeah. Very cool. He's interviewed some really cool people. Um, it's just definitely worth checking out, rubyverse.com. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. Thank you. All right. Well, w- this week we're going to be talking about debugging, and um, I think we're going to get into debuggers a little bit too. Um, it was interesting when we were talking about it before we got started. A lot of people were saying, well, I don't know a whole lot about debuggers, and it sounds like people do most of their debugging in ways other than using an explicit debugger. So I'm a little curious, and, and I'll just let whoever wants to jump in, but w- what do you use when you have a bug that you have to track down in your code? My well, wife. That answers <laughs> it really, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I use put us. Put us. Yeah, print lining, basically. Yep. You know, I, I think a lot of us, you know, at, at various stages in our careers, and, and even, yeah, you know, where we're at now, you know, where some of us are, are pretty advanced in, in our careers, most of you more than I, um, you know, if, if you think it's something that you can find pretty easily or quickly, yeah, put S is a, is a really quick and easy way to do it. No, just use so P. You know what? I can make you 70 percent more efficient. That's right. P. Yay, Peter. I, I actually, what I use instead of doing puts um, or in combination with it is I'll actually use raise quite a bit with just a message because then it halts the execution. Um <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's interesting. 
Um, that, is, that is, by the way, my favorite way to debug Rails. When I'm in the middle of something and it's down in some action and I want to see what an object is, I just raise and then whatever the object is and call dot inspect on it so it turns it into a string for the error message and boom, just reload the page and it pops right up at the top of the page. So uh, I have a little bit of an issue with that method and that is just that um, you, you kind of have to run things over and over again to, to get different bits of information. So if you don't pull up the object and see the the issue, issue right there, then if you call another raise or put S, I mean, you have to change it and then run it again. I mean, isn't that a little bit slow or inefficient? Yeah, you're right that it is. So so let me ask you this, Chuck. What do you do in the middle of a Rails stack when you want to look something up? What do you do? I usually actually use the Ruby debugger, the Ruby debug library. Um, you just require it and then you put debugger in there and it effectively opens up an interactive prompt, kind of like IRB, right. where you can then query um, the state of your, of your stack at that point. So in my experience, I've noticed that there's like two kinds of people in the world, two kinds of programmers that I seem to come across. And it's half of the world does their debugging and a debugger. And that's just how they do it. And, they, and whenever they run into a bug, they immediately fire up the debugger. Um, and that's that's what they tend to do. The other half of the world is is like what most of us have mentioned, that, that you know, just a little bit of application of puts, and we tend to track things down that way. And um, it's, it's always been interesting to me because uh, I've, I've used a debugger in the past. I can use a debugger, and I, I know how it works. And I've actually tried to hook myself on them a couple of times. I've actually, like, tried to get into the habit of using them regularly, and I cannot do it. And um, I think the reason for me, I've been trying to figure that out, and I believe it's that it's a context shift. It's that when I'm sitting there and I'm working on the code and I have it all in my head, then I'm working on the code and I have it in my head. So it makes sense for me to just say, well, it's probably going along somewhere right around here. So let me just see what it's printing right around here and then print that out. And, and I'm, I stay in the same context. But when I have to stop and then fire up the debugger and set a breakpoint and get it to step through to the right point, you know, and, and all that, I, I had to stop thinking about the problem for a while and that content context shift bothers me. Yeah, James, that's a really good point. Actually, that's why I actually find using Rays is not really inefficient, especially because when I do my debugging, I try to think through the path somewhat. So I'm 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 not just sort of putting in a put statement or a raise in a random place and seeing what happens, but trying to think through the path. And then what it does is it allows me to focus on just one thing at a time because when I drop into a debugger, the explorative nature of being able to interactively interact with objects and things like that gets me distracted. And I find that like, like what normally happens is I'll do raise statements and I'll run it and then based on the outcome of that, I already know where the very next place that I might put it would be. Um, and it just helps me focus on one thing at a time. That makes sense. Um, the, I, I have to say that uh, I don't really see a huge difference between using a debugger like Ruby Debug or Ruby Debug 1.9, depending on you know which version of Ruby you're running, uh, versus um, using put statements because effectively you just put the debugger uh, the breakpoint in where you would put your put statement and then 
From there, you can step through your code to the next place you would put it if you're not seeing uh, an apparent problem there. But effectively, what you're doing is you are running a whole bunch of put statements. It's just that you, you, you've kind of frozen the context. You don't have to run it over and over. Right. Right. But I think that's actually a disadvantage um, because you need to keep that whole. You basically need to come up with an execution plan ahead of time for where you're going to put those breakpoints. Um, where if you stop the world and then what you can do is you can make the decision at that time where the next place to go will be. So I don't really think that there's a, a whole lot of value looking in five predetermined places when the first answer is going to tell you yes or no, yes or no, yes or no sort of thing. Right. But what, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you get the first, no, this, this isn't the problem. And you've already got the context set up so that you can immediately move on to the next place unless it's previous in the execution. Because you can always step forward, you just can't step backward. Right. So, so you, you move on to the next spot if it's further down the execution chain and, you know, you, you get another... Right. You step sideways when you realize that your your first idea was wrong and... I mean, normally when you're looking at a debugging problem, you want to divide up the, the space. Right. Um, rather than going deep, you want to try to figure out whether your initial idea was right or wrong. Well, if your initial idea was right, but you didn't get enough context there, a debugger is nice because you can step down you know, to the next step moving forward. But if your whole idea was wrong, um, then you have to start over and set up a whole other context. Yeah, that's true. And I just, I, I don't know, Chuck, um, where, where are you finding a situation where debugging something is taking all that much time to run it? I, I so, have... No, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just going to answer Greg's question real quick. The places that I found this the most effective, really, is in code that I didn't write and I don't completely understand anyway. And so okay. uh, under, yeah. under that context, it's nice because then I can stop the world and I can say, what is everything doing? And so yeah, then, I I, yeah. then, then I get a feel for the context where it's at, and then I can move through it. Um, that's, I, where, I, that's where a debugger and pry probably overlap in their value. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was saying that I like using pry basically for the exact purpose that you said, because if you are trying to figure out where to go, then having an interactive prompt um, is very, very useful. So if if that's your use case, I definitely agree with the, that in terms of the general value of it. Yeah. In, in general, I don't go directly to the debugger either. I usually actually do start with put statements. But if the if the solution it doesn't become apparent in a try or two, then I'll plug the debugger in so that I can actually walk through it step by step and see where I'm going wrong. So I think that's uh, actually a really good point. Uh, as far as uh, debugging, I do actually uh, just prefer puts, or, or as Peter pointed out in Ruby, we have P, which is even better. Um, but uh, for I have used a debugger in the past to understand an algorithm. Like if it's a tight, tight loop and it's using a couple of variables and it's one of those that it's complicated enough, I can't work it out in my head what's in which variable each time through the loop and I just want to walk through a few phases of it. I do like a debugger for that because I can walk through a phase of the loop, examine each variable, and then do it again and again, you know. 
So basically, the longer the longer the life cycle of the problem, the more useful a debugger gets to be, mm-hmm. because you sort of, especially if you don't understand the code that you're working on, because you can sort of look at it at the intermediate points. Um, and so, if there's a long set of intermediate steps, then I, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think like when we first talked about debugging, we're more thinking, oh, something broke, and if you can isolate that end to end, that's where you don't necessarily need the debugger. Right. So, I, I, no, go ahead, go ahead, James. I think Greg's actually onto something there too, in that I don't spend a lot of time just randomly bug hunting these days. Like, and I think that's because I'm so good about testing and and always doing that. So my my cycle is is really short, you know, from the time on the amount of code I write before it's actually being run somewhere and I see a problem, you know, and when when you only have three lines to look in, you generally know right where the problem is, you know, so I I think I've gotten to the point where I just don't spend much time debugging anymore, and, and when I am kind of planning something out or trying to see how pieces work together, I tend to fire up IRB and, and you know, play with objects a little bit and until I've got my head pretty good. So then, you know, I go back in and, and uh, uh, write some tests around it and build it. But So I, I think that's uh, part of the point is the reason the debugger is not that valuable to me is I've managed to really shorten that cycle between, you know, when I, when I was years ago, I, I would write 6,000 lines of code and then try to run it. You know, and, and that that's horrible. You know, and at that point, a uh, debugger is very helpful. Right. So, so totally James, agree. James is just so good that, uh, yeah, he's just so good. James just doesn't write buggy code. Period. That's Maybe. right. If yeah. you just if you just don't make mistakes, you don't need a debugger at all. That's that's the way to go. Yeah, he's but, right though. It, it's it, it is it is true, and uh, you know we we talk about tests as kind of a way of avoiding bugs, but. Uh, um, there, there's another means or methodology of finding bugs that I was taught that I haven't used a lot, and that is that you write a test that basically exposes the bug. Uh, do you guys do debugging in that way at all, where you, you you know there's a problem, so you write a test that you know basically should pass when you I've fix the bug? To, yes, I've had to do that extensively, um, especially because um, in open source projects that become so important. Um, but in just, I've worked on a lot of things that are very high complexity and, um, you will have regressions if you don't actually automate the tests for finding the problems. Um, so I mean, what, what the process normally is like, for example, like the best, best example is, um, Tron, you know, because PDF generation is crazy hard and when things break, um, it's possible that later on they'll break again in not obvious ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so what normally would happen is people would talk, they would basically say, I tried to do this and then my PDF blew up, right? And we would use a combination of messing around in IRB and put statements and uh, I didn't use Pry at the time, but I definitely would have if I had it available to me. Um, that's a place for a debugger. So you do the sort of ex- exploration process until you feel like you know where the problem is. And then I will typically try to build a a minimal example that reproduces the problem. Um, And then once you've got that, if you have just a simple example that really only touches the things that really matter at the core that reproduces the problem, it's so easy to turn that into a test that even if you're not doing TDD uh, day-to-day, it would be like, it it would just be irresponsible not to turn it into a test. Because then you've got... Dude, you know that's called? Forever. Bug-driven development. 
<laughs> so I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, like the more complex something is, the more people who have to use it and work on it, the more that your test should cover every regression. Because by the time you have a bug fixed, it should be so easy to produce that. Um, but I don't know that I would start there as my first step. Um, a lot of times we will fix the bug, you know, in a spike, and then back that out, and then write the test, get the failure, and then make it pass. Right. So bug-driven development, that's BDD? That's right. <laughs> yeah, baby. Sorry, just checking. Well, actually, that was, the normal, that was the original idea behind TDD. You know, the, the original concept before the concept of behavior-driven development was that tests were regression suites. So the whole point of BDD uh, was to tell people, look, it's about more than that. Um, but it still includes that as a core, core component. The regression suites are really, really valuable. I got to agree with Greg. I always try to. So, I mean, to me, in any bug hunt, the step one is find the bug, right? And you have mm-hmm. to get to the point where it's repeatable. That's the whole point. Once it's repeatable, then it's super easy to fix, right? So if I'm going to do that, I would much rather do that by just being, being writing the test that narrows it down. But even if, even if I was in untested code for whatever reason, the first thing I would do is I would try to come up with the exact series of steps that, that led me to the bug every time. Um, and I would probably try to automate that so I could sit there, try something, run it again, try something, run it again, try something, run it again. Have any of you guys actually worked in QA? Nope. I've trained QA people before. Okay. So I'm, I'm the only one here with actual QA experience. And, and that's exactly what the process is for QA, um, both in validating uh, new releases and in, in finding bugs is, yeah, you break it down to an exact process to replicate the bug or in the case of uh you know acceptance testing you you present an exact case that should produce an exact outcome and then you verify that the outcome matches and it's not very different from you know what we do in our unit and and integration tests but you know that that's exactly it you you break it down into step by step by step that a kindergartner could follow to break your code you know or to verify that it actually works but that's so 